The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, what a great audience. Let's dim the lights for this next one. Nope, too much. Ah, there it is. Gotta get things just right. Like Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Tell us what you want to pay and we help you find coverage options that fit your budget. And now, the mood is right. Wait, the lights are back on again. Trudy, can you? And now it's completely dark. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to On Trial. Starring Mark Radlich. Also starring... John Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're on trial. All rise. Court is now in session. The Honorable Judge Dredd presiding. This is on trial, brought to you by the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. And tonight, I am your prosecuting attorney, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And on the docket is the 1982 Walt Disney computer-generated imagery classic, Tron. Because it's video game week, ladies and gentlemen. It's video game week all week long on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. We brought you the Injustice series, the comic book based on the video game, a review of the feature-length motion picture by Steven Spielberg, Ready Player One, with guest host Sean Garmer. We brought you a review of Power Glove's first full-length EP, Metal Combat for the Mortal Man, because they do the video game covers, you see. And we're rounding out Video Game Week with a look at one of the very, very earliest, if not the earliest, movies... Uh, that dealt with computers and video games and the concept of going inside the computer, all matrixy like Tron. And here to defend the honor of said mistress of film, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sean Comer, how do you do, sir? Hello, everybody. I'm Sean. You're not. And yeah, I'm kind of the Rodlich and Broadcasting Network's token gamer. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> indeed. Did you see Tron as a kid? Like, when did you come to Tron? Well, uh, it was released the year I was born. Okay. So I have I have faint memories of catching it on TV. Something like, ah, shit, how many years later must it have been? Probably must have been a good, like, six, seven, maybe even eight or nine years after it came out. Uh, and... I, I was kind of taken taken aback by a whole lot of what in every manner of the hell am I looking at? <laughs> because I, I, I was not one of those kids who was fortunate enough to grow up with nerdy parents. Um, I, I, I know that some of my friends had parents who were uh, – teachers and computer programmers and what and whatnot or just plain tinkerers and they did all this cool stuff and not to knock my upbringing too hard but 
I didn't get a chance to really find out how fascinating I would ultimately find all that stuff because my dad is my biological dad anyway is the mother of all Luddites. <laughs> um, I, I I think if he could, I think if he could go back in time and probably punch who whoever invented the very first computer, he would do it. Uh, he would go back and probably sabotage the creation of the microchip. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I have sat there just in absolute awe and watched him just hunt and peck type with two fingers at a keyboard. So um, Tron kind of wasn't his thing, and so it, it really kind of wasn't exactly my thing, although I still thought it was cool. Uh, but then years later, along uh, would come Tron Legacy, and I would give it another chance. And I, it's not a perfect movie. It's it's an example of how easy it is to be swept away by the rosiness of the nostalgia goggles. But I can certainly see how groundbreaking it was for its time, and how easy it is to appreciate the cultural impact that it kind of had down the road so so Tron comes out in 1982 and I'm six years yep. old I'm pretty sure I watched it I don't think I saw it in the movies but I'm, but whenever it made it to VHS I'm pretty sure that's when I saw it I know we had a copy at home now I grew up with your father's uh, opposite his, his evil opposite I, my dad was absolutely a, uh, a nerd a self-professed nerd. This is a man who who claims to be from Mars. That's how nerdy he is. Uh, we had a library of science fiction novels in the house. My father subscribed to Popular Mechanics magazine, among others, and Omni and uh, some other science periodicals. The man likes. He, my father originally was a chemistry major before he realized that he wasn't neat enough. Um, to, to, to really become successful at that, in which case he went in the Army, came out, and got into computers. I had an Atari, a Commodore 64. I had one of those... Mm. We, we had one of those Timex computers. I don't know if you know what this is, but this was a computer that operated on tape decks. Okay, that's... Timex, the, made, Timex made computers? Yes. I, I always thought they were just a watch company. They briefly dabbled in the home computer... And we had one of them, and it, we, it, you captured the data oh that, that you were working with <laughs> on cassette tapes. No shit. Now, now I have heard of that. I have heard of that kind of system. I just didn't know that Timex had one. And it's it's funny you mention all that because uh, when I when I was a kid, we did finally get a Nintendo Entertainment System after a few years of me asking, and. The funny thing that happened was eventually, you know, at first it started off as something my dad kind of got into, and you know, he'd play a few games here and there with me, uh, stuff like uh, we played double dribble, we took turns on punch out, uh, we played, oh, we played Tetris together, stuff like that. Um, but then came the times when he wouldn't even be playing with me; I would just like come downstairs, and he would just be like playing it on his own. Fast forward a few years, uh, like decades later, and I'm relaying this kind of anecdote to uh, he and to uh, to my stepmother back when the three of us were all on speaking terms. Um, and I point out that oh yeah, he was a better punch out player than I was at one point. He could always 
and he could always beat me at Tetris. I never got the hang of that game. And uh, Kitty, my stepmom, goes, wait, so your dad was a gamer? He's like, I'm not a gamer. <laughs> like, like he, he is the type for whom uh, nerd is still a pejorative. <laughs> nerd. So, nerd. It, yeah, yeah, you know, I am... I, I I am a con, I am a content multifaceted nerd who was raised by you know every stereotypical jock that uh, wishes the early sixties and fifties could miraculously come back. Meanwhile, uh, I grew up with a man who cries at the end of Revenge of the Nerds, and he don't cry much. I've yeah, only see, kn- uh, I've only known the man to cry twice at the end of Revenge of the Nerds and when his best friend Jim died. Yeah, see, <laughs> uh, about uh, about the best I, about the best I can say about Dad's nerdy tendencies, he liked the original Star Trek, but never got into the Next Generation. Um, he liked the first he liked the first three Star Wars movies. Thinks Empire was the best of them. Uh, liked Indiana, liked the original three Indiana Jones movies, and really liked Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's that, that that's about the most. That's about the most I can say about it. Um, otherwise, I kind of picked up everything else just sort of on, sort of on my own. Um, uh, in fact, had it not been for my good friend Scarlet, I probably would have never even been all that interested in revisiting Tron, which means I would have also missed out on my favorite original soundtrack album of all time because goddamn Daft Punk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's... That's kind of the brief history. I remember going to video stores and maybe seeing it occasionally on the shelf, but, I mean, never clamoring to rent it or now, anything I, like that. I was all about Tron when I was a kid. I I didn't know I didn't get it all the way. I didn't understand some of what they were talking about, um, which is kind of gonna, actually going to go into some of my prosecution tonight. But um, as a kid, I was really fascinated by it. I w- it was, it's one of those movies, and... <laughs> And I don't want to give away too much of my argument tonight, but it's definitely one of those movies where the star of the show is the uh, is the the um, special effects, the computer generated imagery. And I and as a kid, you know, and not a critical film reviewer, I was absolutely mesmerized, and that's all I needed. I mean, I was definitely one of those kids like I don't know what they're talking about, but damn, that light cycle scene is awesome. You know, <laughs> hit him with the frisbee, Tron. You know, <laughs> I'm like I was into it. And I and I loved that movie as a kid. One of the reasons why I put it up on the schedule tonight, and I'm and I put myself in the position of being the prosecutor, was I wanted to see if one, if after all, because it's been years since I've seen Tron, and I wanted to see if if I remove the nostalgia glasses and separate myself from my you know my childhood love of that film. One, does it stand up in 2018? Two. Can, can I be critical of one of my sacred cows, of one of my darlings? And as I say, you know, On Trial is, the and really the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network at large, you know, there are, sacred cows are slayed. Yep, yep. <laughs> Jewel, jewels are, uh, are shattered. We don't, uh, you know, any, if we can find the flaw in it, we will. And then, and then when we can't, we'll just invent it. So... <laughs> You know, we we prom- we prop up the crap and we kill sacred cows. That's what we do here, folks. So this will be an interesting discussion tonight, uh, an interesting debate over the merits of Tron all these years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, what notes do you have for us tonight? Well, 
actually, it has kind of about the backstory that that I sort of that I sort of expected. It was surprising. Once upon a time in 1976, an animator by the name of Steven Lisberger saw a sample reel from a computer firm called Magi, and in looking at it, he was introduced to Pong. And whereas a lot of other people who would have looked at it would have just seen these, you know, carefully placed pixels bouncing another pixel back and forth across a screen, uh, he was fascinated. And he saw a means of bringing computer visuals and video game technology to a cinematic screen. And he actually already had the idea for the Tron character um, because he had created it for a 30, for just a bit of 30 second animation uh, that he had been circulating to promote both his studio and a bunch of rock radio stations. And in the early in the early versions, it was this uh, backlit cell animation of a yellow glowing character. In fact, the very same shade he had originally wanted to use for all the heroic characters in the feature length movie, but eventually swapped out for blue in the finished version. Um, his proto his prototype was basically a bearded Cylon Centurion from the original 1978 Battlestar Galactica. And he had armed it with a pair of exploding discs. And around around the time when Tron was really starting to develop, uh, he he was developing a very uh, frustration that was very relatable to a certain generation of nerds, namely Mark, our generation. Um, he noticed that the, the culture behind video games and computer technology was very cliquish. It was, it, it was kind of fringe, kind of insular, and he wanted to find a way to really lovingly open that world up to to all people to all people to all backgrounds so that they could be become as as fascinated by these ambitious frontiers as he was so what happened was he and business partner Donald Kushner borrowed against the <laughs> the the anticipated profits from their 90 minute an Olympics, uh, Animal Olympics. I'm sorry, uh, animated television special, <laughs> so that they could move to the West Coast in 1977 and develop the storyboards for what would eventually become the 1982 Disney release, Tron, uh, which they had initially intended to make as an animated film that was going to be sort of held up by live action sequences. And everything else would employ these computer generation generated visuals, backlit animation, and they were going to finance it entirely by bringing multiple computer companies on board to help produce it. And I am one would think probably have their products featured on the big screen. 
Um, they didn't have much luck, but Information International Incorporated was pretty receptive to the whole idea. Um, they met. They talked about the idea of instead uh, combining that backlit animation with live-action photography so that they could integrate it with the graphics. Um, and it ultimately cost around $300,000 just to develop Tron. And then they had to also secure somewhere between another 4 and $5 million worth of private backing and that was just, be, and that was all before they reached kind of a total standstill of the whole thing. After being turned down by the likes of MGM, Columbia Pictures, and Warner Brothers, um, then in 1980 they brought the idea to Walt Disney, who to uh, well Walt Disney Studios, obviously. I mean, Walt Disney was dead as a fucking doornail by that point, <laughs> depending depending on which conspiracy theory you believe. Um, <laughs> either either that either that or the Jews or either that or you know um, he's in a his head is cryogenically frozen in an underground bunker safely guarded from the Jewish conspiracy so that he can continue to manipulate the world the world's banking himself so um, even then, Disney execs uh, weren't too keen on the idea of giving the pair, giving somebody who had never produced a film and somebody who had never directed a film somewhere around ten to twelve million dollars to make a movie, which whose whose techniques, whose approach had never been tested, had never been tried before. Um, so what they did agree to do was they was they said okay. Here's some money. Um, with that, you create a test. You create a test reel, which what ultimately got was a flying disc champion throwing um, a prototype of the disc used used in the film, and that allowed them to demonstrate their idea of combining animation and live action and live action footage, and also you know, CGI visuals. Uh, won them over. They gave the script a rewrite. They re-storyboarded it based on feedback from the executives. And they ultimately got the gig. Uh, let's go ahead and kind of break down <laughs> kind of break down the aftermath of it. Came out in, 19, in 1982. Had a budget of $17 million. And was it a hit at the box office? Eh, it depends on your definition of hit. Uh, Technically, it was a modest success. It it made thirty three million dollars overall, but Disney, of course, if they're not making all the money, they're not making enough money, so they wrote it off as a financial disappointment. Despite the fact that critics actually were largely pretty warm to it, um, it was viewed as this. A stylish, mesmerizing sound and light spectacle that romanticized what was at the time this these emerging speculative horizons in data technology. And as I'll, as I'll demonstrate in my argument, it was a film far ahead of its time. I mean, further ahead than, than Lisberger and Kushner had to possibly have any idea it was. And 
even today, it, it still scores a solid 70% fresh rating, freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, funny thing, it was nominated for two Oscars uh, for costume design and uh, sound design. However, <laughs> if you can believe this, it was disqualified from the Best Special Effects Award. You want to know why? Why, Sean? <laughs> Your timing is so off. Uh, I honestly didn't know you were prompting me. Be, because uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences felt that using a computer was cheating. Yeah. And years later, these same people will fuck Andy Serkis out of an Oscar because he's right. not really acting. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Not only that, but how many years running now? Out of, out of all the years they've had, they've had that category the past few years, has Best Animated Feature been won by a full, by a full CGI movie? More importantly, how many years has it been won by a Disney by a Disney Pixar movie? But no, nope. <laughs> way back way back in nineteen ninety two, you used a computer. <laughs> That's a paddling. <laughs> just picturing I, I I know you know you're you're on a roll here, but I'm just I'm just picturing some you know, uptight person going, where, are the, where are the sets? Where are the, where are the, the, the carpenters? The, the sawing wood, wood. Where are the costume? Yeah, just, just. You give me this thing that was drawn up by computer technologists, computer programmers, people with math skills. Do you understand the absence of humanity in what you've done here? Something along those lines. Oh, God. Somebody out there, please clip that. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the most fantastic summations, I think, of, uh, of probably the opinion toward early computer effects in movies. Because, I mean, and it's, it's not entirely inconceivable as to why they would feel that way. Because... I mean, at the time, about the most advanced computer effects seen in seen in cinemas had been like about five seconds of wireframe animation in in Star Wars. You know, uh, something something like that. That was stuff like that was bleeding edge stuff. Um, or or like I or like I said, early video games. I mean, it was. It was 1982. This wasn't even the era, the era of the NES. You know, this was this was Atari and ColecoVision stuff, or uh, or, or cabinets, something something like that. Uh, that was that was the height of technology. Whereas uh, today, God, I played I played so many games with. Uh, with visual polish that's on par or even exceeding what you see from a lot of Hollywood features. 
But yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the backstory in a nutshell of Tron. At least it's it's all the important kind of the setup for all the important stuff that that we're going to be talking about. All right. So I'm going to give you my uh, five cent synopsis here. We have uh, Jeff Bridges, who plays Kevin Flynn. He's a software engineer, and his he wrote a bunch of video games. They were stolen by uh, the man who would go on to run the company Flynn used to work for, Encom, whose name is Ed Dillinger, who is played by David Warner. So, uh, Flynn is running an arcade, but in the back of the arcade, he's got a computer, and he's set to be hacking NCOM, trying to find evidence that his games were stolen by this charlatan, this fraud, who is Dillinger. Uh, He, of course, is blocked the computer program that is running the whole thing, the master control program, the MCP, is... uh, preventing this from happening and uh, meanwhile is gathering all of these other programs to him making himself uh, stronger and more powerful as the days go on he has developed this is this is early skynet Uh, he is becoming self-aware and uh, more and more powerful so um meanwhile back in the back in encom we have alan bradley who is working on a uh, security program, and this program is supposed to be the checks and balances apparatus to make sure the MCP doesn't become Skynet. So, of course, Alan is also blocked, and they give him a bullshit excuse as to why he can't get to his projects. Uh, he has a girlfriend of sorts who is uh, Cindy Morgan, plays Dr. Laura Baines, and she is working on a laser that uh, digitizes things. And she learned, you know, and there's a discussion of uh, certain blockages happening there. And so ultimately, the big problem here is the people working at NCOM can't get to their projects because the master control has locked them out. And the person uh, who's supposed to be in charge, the human in charge of the master control, isn't being honest and, and forthright with them as to why. And then you have Flynn, who, as I said before, is trying to prove uh, that he got ripped off. So they decide that the way to fix this is to break into NCOM and uh, get on one of the terminals and uh, break through the master controls controls and get what they need. You know, they're going to unlock the Tron program, which is going to aid them in getting the evidence they need to prove Dillinger's a fraud. Of course, the master control learns of this and gets a hold of the digitization laser and zaps Flynn and sends him into the computer. What we learn is that these programs that the master control has been gathering, um, he takes in what he needs, and the rest he he puts in gladiator games, computer <laughs> computerized gladiator games, pong. Basically, they 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 essentially are 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 playing pong with one another, or as you uh, as you might remember a game tennis. They're playing tennis basically. <laughs> so. Uh, the whole thing leads to uh, Flynn finding Tron and some other like-minded programs, and they're gonna and they're gonna revolt against the MCP. They end up uh, breaking out of the games and go and uh, at some point going their separate ways. Flynn going one way, Tron going another, and ultimately this results in them taking down the MCP. 
uh, at the end of the movie, and Flynn is rest- uh, Flynn is restored to the real world, and he has the proof in his hands, and he becomes the CEO of Encom, and all you know, and the the system that has been enslaved by the MCP is now a free system again. So that ultimately is the like I said, the five cent plot. You know, a little bit more detail to it than that, but that's all you really need to know. So I, I talked before about my love of this movie as a kid, and you know, I was razzle-dazzled, as I should have been, by the special effects. Here's the thing. Looking back on it with a critical eye, and, and I said this about Pacific Rim Uprising on Damn You Hollywood, and I just said it again about Ready Player One, the feature directed by Steven Spielberg. As I said, the star of the show is the special effects. But just because something, you know, let, let, let's take the Lord of the Rings movies. The, the, the special effects in the Lord of the Rings is pretty top-notch. But the story, the, the source material especially, but you know, the, the way that it was adapted is incredible. And the characters are, are wildly fleshed out and three-dimensional. And it is an emotionally gripping ride you know, as you get to see these wonderful, fantastic things brought to life by the wonders of computers. Tron, that's, that's the goal. Pacific Rim, Ready Player One, Tron, all suffer from the same problem. They give you great razzle-dazzle, but the structure of the film suffers. Here's some examples of what I'm talking about. Let's take Flynn. Flynn is not a very well-fleshed-out character. Okay, he gets by on the charisma of Jeff Bridges. I mean, this is the dude after all, right? I mean, I haven't seen The Great Lebowski. I'm sure someone will make me watch it someday and we'll do a podcast on it, you know, or I'll have to defend it or prosecute it or something. But for the time being, I, I, <laughs> here's a shock for the courtroom. Never seen The Big Lebowski. But I know that The, the Big Lebowski succeeds, uh, at least on some levels, by the charisma of Jeff Bridges acting and, and the character itself. Well, okay, you know, Jeff Bridges is a great actor. And his Kevin Flynn character is fun and charismatic, but rather two-dimensional. There isn't a lot there. Let's, let's look at what his personal stakes and motivations are. Because they're, they're terribly underwritten, and, and that's a problem. It's a problem if you're looking critically at this movie. If, you, if, you know, if, you're ju- if you're just there for the special effects and the rocket cycle scene, you know, uh, light cycle scene, rocket cycles are, are Flash Gordon, um, ah, light cycle scene, then, you know, it's kind of a who cares on the character. But if you're looking at it critically, this is important. So he got ripped off and fired or left or whatever from MCOM, and he's sort of obsessed with getting his stuff back, you know, getting the acknowledgement that he so deserves for creating these games that gave somebody else the fortune that should have been his. Now, I pick that up listening very closely, and and it's certainly part of uh, at least two different exposition dumps, but that's just the point. An exposition dump isn't particularly interesting. It could be made to be interesting, or it could be the Matrix movies where there are tons of exposition dumps and it's just a talking head on screen for about 20 minutes. See our previous Long Road to Ruin discussion on that. So my point being that 
for you to get a real flavor for what's happened to Kevin Flynn, you need to see him suffering to a degree. You need to see how having been ripped off has brought him low and how being brought low has given him the fire and the desire to get his shit back. And when we meet Flynn, he's running a successful arcade. There's a party going on in there. There's all kinds of kids playing video games. He's having a ball. He's the you know, he's he's ace in space paranoids, a game that he invented, a game that he wrote. He's got groupies, okay? That's how, that's how dated this movie is. This nerd, this video game enthusiast has groupies. Um, he's, I, I don't get the sense that he's suffering, and there needed to be a better portrayal of his internal strife if that's all there is that's motivating him to get his stuff back. Um, not very well, uh, not, not very well fleshed out, very underwritten. And then you have uh, Bruce ba- Boxleitner's Alan Bradley character, or, or Tron, okay? So, because, you know, in the, in the computer world, you, uh, you wear the face of your user. And so he wrote Tron, and therefore Tron has his face, right? So Tron is our titular hero in this thing. He is the Luke Skywalker to Flynn's hand solo. And here's, again, here's the problem. Tron isn't really a character. Tron is, Tron is a thing. You know, Tron is... <laughs> so essentially, his character is hero. That's it. There's nothing more to him than that. He's here to save the day. He's here to stop the MCP from becoming Skynet. That's it. That's the sum total of his characterization. I mean, I think Bruce Bruce Boxleitner does an admirable job of doing something with that character and at least making, again, trying to play off of some degree of charisma. Um, But you don't know... Other than what I've just told you, which is sort of, you know, just a definition of his characterization, you don't know what Tron is, who he is, what he loves, what's at stake, what's driving him. He just is because the plot says so. Which, again, works if you're trying to sell the the big picture of, of this world, but isn't really, you know, interesting in terms of you have to spend two hours with this character. And you know, and for and for Alan, I never got a real sense of what. Again, he gets locked out of his Tron project, and Dillinger says, "You know, look, we're we're just trying to keep the hackers out." And then we go from that to him complaining to the girl to them, you know, uh, going to Flynn, and suddenly he's <laughs> suddenly he's joining the revolution. I just it, it's a it's a rush job. Yes, you know, the, 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 I'm sure the defense will be like, hey, that's, that's, that's all you needed, that's all you... Been. Is it a crime to ask for more? Is it a crime to expect more out of, out of a movie like this? To have a more fleshed-out characterization of, bro, of both Alan Bradley and Tron? Because I feel like in both cases, they were uh, stock characterizations to move the plot along. Jeff Bridges shines in this, and then, you know, again, because of his ability and his charisma, um, and your star, who for whom the movie is named after, is outshined. And I think that's a crime to the movie. I think that's a crime to the structure of the movie. My last prosecutorial, prosecutorial note on this actually has to do with the setting itself. 
Because as a kid, you know, again, bright lights and big cities and all of that, you know, it looked like a fun, interesting world. Upon watching it again in 2018, you can make an argument that the the geek speak doesn't really hold up. You know, we, we, we've, we've evolved from a lot of what was being discussed then. But you, I can forgive the movie for that. It was written in, like, the late 70s, early 80s. So I'm not going to hold that against the movie, and I don't think anyone should. But what doesn't hold up for me is that computer setting itself. It's black on black on black with streaks of red and blue light. Now, at the very end of the movie, granted, it kind of comes alive a little bit. But let's, let's make a comparison. Now, I was not wazooey about Tron Legacy, but Tron Legacy looks really pretty. And, and that's a lot of black, too, with, you know, with streaks of bright lights. But however it was done, they made the, the Tron Legacy setting really rich and fun and interesting and even though you know and the amount of time spent there I didn't feel like the setting itself got boring watching Tron the 1982 feature in 2018 the setting drones it drones on it's like the teacher in Ferris Bueller's Day Off it's just it just goes and goes and goes and the novelty of what they're presenting to you in this wild and rich, fantastic world that Alice has fallen into, Alice being Flynn, loses its novelty and luster after about five minutes. And then the rest of the movie is just one... And I'm not talking about the action here, but I'm, I'm talking about the setting. It's one setting set piece after another of the same thing over and over and over again. It was a nice try and certainly a great effort for 1982, but I think, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, people say, oh, the Beatles is the greatest band in the history of rock and roll. Bullshit. The Beatles had one of the greatest impacts in the history of rock and roll in an American American culture. You might even say global culture. But there are better bands than the Beatles. There are better musicians than the four guys in the Beatles. There's a difference between having great cultural impact and significance and being a talented artist. There are more talented artists doing more interesting features with the same uh, motif than Tron. And I'm not going to elevate Tron just because they did it first. Your witness, sir. I'd like to thank prosecution for bringing up that example of the Beatles again. Because actually, it's a stunningly apt comparison. You know, oh, for, for a second, you were opening a can of something. For a second there, I thought you were saying, Psh! No, no, I'm sorry. I'm like, drinking. Uh, yeah, drink, of course. <laughs> go, go fuck yourself, Sean. No, I'm drinking ginger ale. You see... Allow me to concede a few points about the Beatles. In terms of technical virtuosity, do they still rank among the very cream of the crop in the history of all popular music? No. No, I would say that they don't. 
did they break a lot of ground that artists that came after them would dig deeper into in order to produce a lot of a lot of their their own revolutionary works just based on that on kind of plunging into that fertile soil and what they found deposited there yes absolutely were the beatles i mean were they learned scholars of their craft no one thing a lot of people don't realize is that initially none of the fab four could read music at all the only thing is paul eventually learned you know he he pretty much taught himself and nowadays we do regard paul mccartney as an, an actual pretty much musical genius you know, someone who is who is extremely ex, an extremely extremely competent composer. So, let's take a look at Tron for a moment. Let's take a look at what we have here in terms of the visuals of this movie. Because yes, I will admit they don't hold up to what we see today. In fact, allow me to present an alternate opinion of Tron Legacy. As much as it is a lineal sequel to the story of its predecessor, you could also look at that film, which came out in 2012, as being the realization of what you know, Lisberger and Kushner's original vision could have been if it had been made with today's technology. If they had maybe taken the story in a completely different direction. You know, it could have almost been as much of a remake or a, or a ground-up revival as it was a sequel. In that way, it's almost more comparable to the Evil Dead remake than it is to something that should just have a, have a part two next to it. But that being said, one must take a closer look at not only the techniques used to make this movie, but also what they yielded in the end. I've, I've joked a couple of times. I've pulled arguments, admittedly, out of my supple rectal cavity about how <laughs> if we hadn't gotten this bad movie, if this, if this movie hadn't done this badly, somebody else wouldn't have come along and done it, and done it better. No, this is one time when filmmakers became ambitiously inventive and not just pulling things together clumsily but really ingeniously innovative and it paved the way for some brilliant things we have seen in the 30 plus years hence for starters if there's no Tron there is no there is no Toy Story, and hence there might as well be no Pixar. That's right. <laughs> you you heard you heard me. Um, many visual elements in this movie were made by colorizing black and white photos and digitizing them, enhancing enhancing the colors, so on and f so forth. They were using real life objects 
to create computer-generated backgrounds. Whereas, on the other hand, there's an argument to be made that John Lasseter, who has openly praised this movie as an inspiration for him doing everything that he that he's done, arguably an influence right up there alongside the great the great uh, Japanese hand-drawn genius Hayao Miyazaki. And his company went on to kind of, I guess you could say, reverse engineer that imp- that approach because now they create entire digital, entire physical environments strictly on a computer. It's pretty much the opposite. At the time, there was there was really no roadmap. There was no set of instructions for the kind of daring cinematography this movie sometimes displayed, some of its sweeping camera moves. They had to meticulously hand-calculate each motion, no CG to fall back on. So when you think about that, when you think about carefully, physically plotting the path of a camera, think about if this movie hadn't hadn't come along first and sort of shown what was possible. You have to wonder, would anybody have thought when making The Matrix, hey, we got this idea for this concept called bullet time. Let, 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 let me show you what we're talking about. This, this, just ser- this series of just technically master- masterful, smooth camera movements to depict the slowing down of time. Or, I mean, either, depending on you look at the slowing down of time or preternaturally, you know, fast physical motion. In a way, given how far CGI has come, there's an argument to be made that we will probably never see a movie quite this groundbreaking or quite like this ever again. I mean, when you watch it now, I mean, and you consider that there was there was no texture mapping to fall back on for any of the images, any of the backgrounds. You just have to sit back and appreciate at film resolution how monumentally smooth everything looks given what they were working with at the time. And again, I, I want to reiterate, comparably... <laughs> Uh, this was back at a time when a few seconds of wireframe animation in Star Wars was still just a mind-blowing thing to see. It really is genuinely incredible. So that brings me to some of the prosecution's arguments about the movie itself. And you know, yeah, I will admit, there's a, there's a point to be made there that the story could have been better. I will concede that, especially in terms of the fact that the notion was to create something with an extremely broad mass appeal based on this very niche world of nascent technology that was that was the, that was still the stuff of at best hobbyists, at worst, you know, science fiction. 
But is the story really that bad? Is it really? Because I think there's something to be missed by looking at it from the wrong point of view. The prosecution argued that the stakes for Flynn are questionably fleshed out throughout the entire movie. But are they? Are they really? I mean, I wonder if the prosecution is thinking about this in terms of seeing this story through the eyes of the people who wanted to tell it. Because they are... <laughs> they they were slash are, and I refuse to use this word as a pejorative, they're nerds. Absolutely. And that's why things are a little bit different. Because, you know, to us, life is not always like Revenge of the Nerds. It's not always like The Big Bang Theory. And... Yeah, I like the character of Flynn, and I love the charisma that Jeff Bridges brings to it, because this is one of those early movies in which, for once, the nerd is not the joke butt. He is not the pratfall waiting to happen. He's not the, he's not the comic relief. He's a man with an actual personality, with a little bit of substance and heart to him. Man, is that refreshing, especially when you consider the way, you know, my ilk slash Mark's ilk, I can see, yeah, he's six, seven years older than I am, so it's maybe viewed a little bit differently through his eyes. That had to have been something to see. I mean, if I had been... If I had been someone who was in junior high or high school, or say even just about the age of the kids in Stranger Things, man alive would that have been refreshing. You know, to see someone like me who was a cool guy but who was also smart and heavily into technology and video games and science and math and computers, all of that. And you know, Mark talks about how we never really see Flynn suffering. But, you know, for, for a lot of my slash our people, that's not unusual. That's not unusual for us at all. We go through high school, we go through junior high, high school, even college, and we just kind of, we take the little indignities. Now, so often, we're sort of there to be the workhorses for somebody else, because what else can we do? We're not strong enough to fight back. We don't have the force of personality to rally anyone behind, behind our kind of things. We are the worker ants. You know, cool kid needs some home. Cool kid needs some homework done. We don't have any friends. Hey, maybe we'll get invited. We'll get invited to a party if we help them fudge their essay. You know, let them copy. Let them copy notes. Hold your test just to the right side of your desk, just a little bit, just so. You get to college. What do we hear about all? 
hear about all the time? Barely literate athletes who basically have who basically have studious students on call for them at all times to help them float by in their classes so the school can earn a New Year's Eve bowl berth or so they can contend for a shot at the Final Four. Don't pretend it's unusual. I went to a Division I school. I went to a Division I school where this was a thing. I went when this was a thing. By all means, go, go Google University of Missouri, Quinn Snyder, Ricky Clemens. It's a bit of a doozy. And it's not the first time they've been accused of it either. As, as the same has gone for a lot of schools. You hear this about one major school per year. But I digress. It's something that we're just kind of, just kind of taught. In this case, Flynn slaves away. He's the brains. Somebody with the business acumen is the one who gets to reap the benefits. And so at this point, yeah, I would find it completely plausible that, yeah, he might have been successful. Yeah, he had his own arcade. Yeah, he was, he was living the good life, popular guy, but it had to always sting at him just a little bit that he put so much hard work into creating something from nothing. Because make no mistake, that is what nerds do at our best. We take the languages of math and science and intangibles and ideas and we turn them into things that people can see and hear and touch and okay I'm a cooking nerd taste (laughs) no full sensory reality we make that happen and the people who the people like the ones who stole Flynn's ideas they damn sure couldn't do it themselves. That's why they employ the nerds to do it. However, you have to remember, this was all taking place at a time before the nerds had won. Yeah, you heard me. Before we won. Nowadays, I mean, and and even back when I was in college or or Mark was in college, or not college, but fully fully adult, I should say. You know, cell phones, computers, video game systems, cameras, all this neat stuff that the cool kids that wouldn't let us sit at their t- sit at their table in high school, or that beat the shit out of us after classes, or staged all kinds of humiliating pranks, ostracized us. That's the stuff that they they were falling all over themselves, putting down the equivalent of practically car payments to buy. You know who made that? You know what? For the most part, no. It it what it wasn't the star quarterbacks, quarterbacks and the cheerleaders. Often, no. It was nerds. It was the kids who got. The kids who got pushed around. Some of them not even guys who gradu- who graduated college in some cases. So nowadays, we've won. 
because we gave the world everything that makes it go round right now. You know, the uh, the Lenovo laptop that I'm reading that I'm reading my notes off of, the uh, the PlayStation Four and flat screen TV where I'm watching my watching my good friend Saki Sakura's Twitch stream while I read all this. No. Made, made by us joke butts. Made by us outcasts. But somebody else gets to take the credit for it for the most part. And inside, what can we do? We just kind of let that simmer because you know, we're not part of the cult of personality. At least not most of the time, anyway. At least up to that point, we weren't yet. Nowadays, the scales have shifted, but back then in the, but back then in the early 80s, this was still emerging stuff. This was the era of glitz, glam, big, excess. You know, not sensibility and innovation and, dis- and disruption and things like that. This was a different time. So a guy like that who was already kind of working, kind of working on, on the fringe, and then he has all this hard work that he put into something he loves stolen. Yeah, on the inside, he was kind, he was kind of stewing, and I'm kind of okay with the fact that it's just kind of left there for a certain audience to reach their own conclusions. Because, yeah, the average person who hadn't been through that might not have gotten it. No, I get that. And yeah, that's a failing of, failing of the movie. I won't lie and say it isn't. But to the people for whom I believe part of this movie was really written, they sat there and read that and probably saw that scene and went, yup. I know exactly what you mean. I feel you, Flynn. And you know, that brings me to something where I am going to go ahead. And pull and pull something out of my ass. I'm going to limber up a little, a little bit, stretch, and pull out the Bengay and the hemorrhoid cream because this one is coming. Yeah, straight out of the shoot. <laughs> there was the reference that the character is not really a character. In fact, I, I kind of like the idea that he's Luke to Flynn's Han. Interesting observation, but not one that I think I entirely agree with. Because, yeah, he's not really a total representation of his creator. But, could it be, and just try looking at this through the idea that sometimes art takes on characteristics that's in the audience's eyes that its creator never intended... Could it be that maybe there's a little bit more to that choice? I mean, yeah, he, he's not he's not really a character. He's a means by which Flynn achieves his objectives. But is that because he's maybe a representation of how man is able to give technology life by how he uses it? to give it a purpose that man takes something that man creates from nothing from the ether from a coding language 
from characters on a screen in a database and turns it in to something remarkable. In a way, the character is the essence of Bradley's genius. It may not have the personality of the man. But it's a little it's a little bit of him. It's a little bit of Bradley's brain at work. His 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 thoughts, his notions, his intellect kind of made manifest and kind of weaponized in a way. Because again, that's the essence of nerddom. We we take something and we learn about it and we analyze it and we think about it to practically a quantum degree. And we not only give it life, but sometimes we can take something that somebody else made and give it life that they never expected. And that brings me to the ultimate value of this movie, after which I will cede the floor back to the prosecution for a closing statement. And that is to bring this around to the notion that... The nerds of the 80s who saw this were more than likely captivated by the way that its creators shared their fascination with information systems and just the expanse of technology as a whole. And based on that, there was more than one John Laster in that bunch, I'm sure, who became the technological mavens that sparked the world's digital revolutions. That stuck with them. You know, it gave them it gave them a hero. It gave them their their kind of maybe maybe this is a bit grandiose, but maybe a lesser version of their Hercules. Their their story to their story to remember. I mean, that's why this movie has endured for so long, isn't it? I mean, think about the fact that, and keep in mind, this was years before Tron Legacy was ever going to be a reality. There's a world in Kingdom Hearts 2 based on Tron. And actually, it's a pretty damn loving, faithful recreation of the spirit of the movie, if I must say. It's a damn fine level. You have you have a world within a video game that recreates a fictional video game. It's delightfully meta. I mean, I kind of like to believe that you know Daft Punk were were probably were probably so so keen to make the soundtrack to Tron Legacy in part because they probably remembered seeing this and seeing the different world that it tried to create. Is it a perfect story? No. Is it sometimes confusing? Yeah. Could it be fleshed out a little bit better in places? Yeah, certainly. But then again, personally, and you're free to agree with me or not, I feel like it would have then made a lot of things on the nose. And it wouldn't have spoken on quite such an intricate personal level 
to a whole culture that was really only beginning to find its legs and that would one day shape the entire world around them. So in a sense, we can look we can look at Flynn at the end of this movie as he becomes the CEO of Encom and we can truly see that as foreshadowing that yes, one day if we hold the line long enough, the nerds will win. Your closing statement. You uh, you, you talked about how what we get from Jeff Bridges' Flynn is, is enough because some of the audience, a fraction of the audience, can empathize and see themselves as Flynn. Okay, who are we making this movie for? Is this a student film? Is this an indie project to be played at Sundance or, you know, some other film festival? Is it, you know, is it there to elicit the praise of those uh, whose noses are the highest in the air looking for only the, the, the finest of films pruned from the, the vast garden of features produced year after year? Or was this a Walt Disney movie meant to make money? <laughs> was, this suppo- was this movie supposed to attract a wide audience? Was it supposed to do what Walt Disney does best, which is the creation, manufacturing, and marketing of wonder and amazement for your children to then become uh, obsessed with and bring their own children into creating generations and generations of loyal fans of the mouse? Or was it a love letter to like 5% of the people in 1980 dealing in computer programming. I mean, we could debate that, I guess. But I'm pretty sure when Walt Disney decided to get behind this feature, they were thinking the former of what I said, not the latter. They said, hey, if you want to make a love letter to computer programmers, that's fine. But you better make it appealing to a mass audience. And let me go back to your notes. This was a middling success, and successes in quotes. It like barely makes over its budget, if I remember correctly. I have to go back and look at it again. Um, you know, barely doubles its budget. Midland success at best, success in quotes. You, you so you you smart people, you people who. Uh, have adopted the culture of the internet and made it your own and stand firmly and proudly by your nerd credentials, you may want something that speaks to you personally and you don't need a tremendous amount of uh, fleshing out of a character because you see so much of yourself in that character that subtlety speaks volumes and there, there is an argument to be made that subtlety can speak volumes and you don't need everything to be on the nose but for the vast majority of people that are about to make uh, Avengers Infinity War a two billion dollar movie and made Black Panther a one billion dollar movie nope Tron needed to be better than it was and by better 
I mean more fleshed out characters, more suffering. There needed to be more of the human element, more of a general human element in the feature than what the defense was drawing a circle around, which is this fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a subculture. We like to think that that the computer, internet, programming, tronish culture now is more mainstream and widespread. But I'll tell you, 10 years ago, I had a friend of mine who went into therapy whose therapist didn't know what the internet was. That was 10 years ago. There are people who, when I tell them I do a podcast, respond... Oh, wow. Are you famous? They know me already. They know I'm not famous. They act as if when I say I'm doing a podcast, (laughs) that I'm doing magic. (laughs) There's some sort of alchemy going on in my home that that, that creates this otherworldly thing called the podcast. I, I, I love the defense and I love the idea that the nerds have come so far. Yes, in, in many ways, people who you know specialize in science and math and technology have, 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 been, have given us greatness and been given greatness. But it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a subculture still. And the vast majority of people don't get it, don't understand it, and need more Marvel and less Tron. The prosecution rests. Yeah, you think explaining a podcast is tough? Try explaining <laughs> a Twitch stream. <laughs> so, Get you, back to me. <laughs> so you play a video game, and it goes on the internet, right? I don't know why I have to do that in a southern voice. but <laughs> Well, you have to remember, I do temporarily still live in rural Missouri. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, this was this was interesting. You know, it was an ex- it was definitely an exercise in. You know, I, I don't al- I don't always go back and look at you know the things I loved as a kid and try to tear them down and, and scrutinize them. Um, and when I do it, be- like I've been this is this is one I agonized over. We didn't get to do the Tomb Raider one, but I was I, I this is the yeah. Second- I apologize again for that. It, 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 shit happens. <laughs> um. But I, what I was what I was going to say is this is I think like the second movie in a row that I've had to watch critically and I've really struggled right up until showtime with what I was going to say about it. You know, I watched uh, Tron last weekend and I'm like I still love this movie and at 40 and almost 42 years old I really get what's happening now. I I understand because as a kid I didn't understand a lot of what they were talking about. I just knew the evil computer that was spinning in a circle was, mm-hmm. you know, was making pro- was making these programs fight one another. Like, like, like one of them's an actuarial program and another one's an accounting program. And they might as well have said, one's a McGigigigig program and one's a McGigigig program. It, that's what that meant to me, you know, when I was six. But, um, you know, like I, I watching it now, I'm like, wow, this is so much more of a richer experience for me than from when I was a kid. I really get what's happening here. Uh, but I had to turn off that. Redis, you know that part of me that's rediscovering a thing that I loved, so that the critical part of me could say, "Okay, but so, but what's wrong with it?" Because it's not perfect. You know, uh, it, it isn't often that that we're forced that we're forced to say, 
about Disney, they had no idea what they had. If anything, <laughs> if anything, when something fails with Disney, it's usually for the for the opposite reason. It's usually because they have what they think is a brilliant idea, and somehow it just doesn't come across the way they hope. They're not known for letting influ for letting influential, uh, really potential laden um, properties slip through their fingers and, and just kind of fall by the wayside. But goddamn, for for nearly thirty years, that was what happened with this one. I mean, even despite the fact that it it became a cult favorite. I gotta so. I gotta give Tron Legacy another shot. I remember like being super excited for it in the, when it came out in theaters because I was a huge Tron fan, and I saw it. And I remember by the end of it, I I had one of those. Blade Runner 2 reactions where I'm like what the hell did I just watch um, <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the reason why I didn't want to do it on this show was because I remember hating it at the time and I was like I'd rather go back and I'd rather go back and attack something I love than you know than, than pee on something I, I hated um, mm-hmm. you know maybe maybe, at a, maybe in the future I'll, I'll take the other tact with it and try to defend the goddamn thing. But um, you know, for now, I, I, I wanted, I just wanted to watch one of my favorite movies again and talk about it. So that's what we did tonight. Well, and that's and that's one of the tricky things about having a cult favorite movie is you're always walking that fine line between I want people to love this as much as I do, and at the same time, going, man. Everything about this that alienates other people is so much of it is exactly what I love, what I love about it, and so I kind of don't want anybody else uh, to pick up on it. <laughs> right. um, you, you you mentioned before, and 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 I agree, it's a valid notion of well, it's it's not it's not broadly appealing. Well, the same thing was my conclusion about the Warcraft movie. Um. As a as something that's going to have a really sweeping appeal across all audiences, no, it failed fairly miserably. On the other hand, as something that was pretty much down the line, about as true as you could hope to the lore of to the lore of the property. And the history of and the history of the games and everything. Yeah, you know what? It was one of the most expensive, higher quality, enjoyable fan films ever made. Um, and then you compare that to something like, well, Assassin's Creed, which was trying to get itself over with with everyone was trying was trying to be widely beloved and in the process it just kind of shits on everything that made the IP so bankable in the first place so much so that somebody actually thought yeah there's money to be made by making a movie out of this um, it's it's difficult and in this case you're not talking about something that's just adapting one one particular property but it's it's adapting an entire culture, an entire 
an entire technology and trying to do so in a way that's that's faithful to it and it's going to speak to the people who well who speak the language but in the process yeah unavoidably you're just going to lose people on people along the way because if you talk to if you talk to other nerds um, about their about their favorite subjects you know, we don't dumb things down. We we let fly with the jargon because we just feel confident that the other person uh, on the other side of the conversation is just going to understand it. Um, I'll tell you, I had a similar reaction to the one that you're talking about with Inside Out. I loved Inside Out. Now, I mean, Inside Out is is, is Tronish. You know, it takes it takes the idea of something that is inanimate and makes it animate and gives it personality mm-hmm. and creates an entire world around this idea. What yep. what emotions in 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 someone's mind, in someone's body and soul. Um and I loved Inside Out for that reason because it really it handled the idea of what are our what what are, what is the meaning of our thoughts and emotions. And it it you know, and it was a children's movie, but it spoke to it spoke to me on so many different levels that you know yeah. I really ugly cried throughout a lot throughout a lot of that movie, and well, well hang, hang on the the thing okay. of it the thing of it was was that same year the Minions movie beat the fuck out of it. See, <laughs> you and, know? and I was and so mad. But it's funny you bring up Inside Out because so often um, in the past few years the way I've learned to deal with what depression and anxiety have kind of have kind of made have kind of made of my mind I actually have a system for dealing with that and it's one that it's one that I kind of fashioned myself at first because uh, I've I've never I've never had the the resources to seek professional help um, or go on medication or anything like that and so I had to kind of come up with this system for sorting thing for sorting things out, and you know, at some point I got kind of curious, like, well, am I doing something that somebody else is doing, or am I actually finally just losing my mind? And it turns out I went to Google and through some create through some rather creative searching, I found, oh, there's this there's this thing called internal family system therapy. That's basically what I've been doing. Holy shit, I taught myself psychotherapy. But of course, you know, I, and I could I could break that down to other people close to me and try to explain it to them that way in in kind of the parlance of of that particular technique. But on the other hand, I find that usually what's easier is I say, okay. Did you see Disney's Inside Out? Oh, yeah, 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 I saw that. I said, okay, that is basically the way I kind of manage things in, manage things in my head. That is the way I sort out the internal, mo- the internal monologues. And then, and then from there, when I explain everything else about it, they go, oh, okay, I get it. So... Occasionally, yeah, a movie like that kind of it, it gets it right and it speaks to it on a deep 
on a deep level, but Inside Out did that far better than than Tron did. I'll be the first to admit that. But yeah, it's it's depressed it's depressing when you really see and it's frustrating when you see a really intelligent intelligent film like that that tackles such a sensitive deep subject and tries to do it subtly with a very fine touch. And it gets beaten out at the box office by the insane mutant babbling talking corn nuggets. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, you know, Winfrey's made the point, and we, and every time I've brought this up, that Mi- Minions had wide box office appeal more so than Inside Out, and that's saying something considering Inside Out was an animated Pixar f- film for kids. So, mm-hmm. you know, w- w- with funny looking with, with funny looking characters, and it's colorful and it's relatable and everything else, and yet as relatable and as you know, as people could see themselves as Riley, and you know, and ha- and it was an about an important subject, and really, the, it was a four star winner. It checks every box except for the box of fart humor. It didn't have fart <laughs> humor, Sean, <laughs> and Minions did. <laughs> it all came down to flatulence. It really did. I can't, I can't think of a better way to end this discussion. It all comes down to flatulence. <laughs> <laughs> more farts in Tron, more money to be made. Um, in, clo- in closing, Your Honor, pooped. <laughs> yeah. she, she pooted. Um, all right. So, so that's it for the month of April. Um, we've got, with the, with the changing in films between uh, Avengers and um rampage that's all we could fit in april so may uh, april show is bring may on trials the next one we'll be doing will be uh may 8th and we'll be looking at battleship so that'll be fun um and i think that's it for the month of may i'm just looking at the calendar real quick uh uh, that won't be the only me and sean show though sean will be joining us for tv party tonight the week that the arrow finale is going to air so we'll have a uh We'll have a little discussion of what's to be to be expected in the Arrow finale, how the season is up to that point, and that kind of thing. Um, as for what we do after, so that's May, and of course, this is the summer of Sean. In June, we'll have the 1994 Oscar debate, Forrest Gump versus Dances with Wolves, and that's going to be June 5th. And then uh, the summer of Sean ends July... <sighs> July uh, come out come out wherever you are alright not July um, August <laughs> uh, yeah there we go August 13th uh, let me try that one more time Forrest Gump versus what was the other one uh, it was going to be Forrest Gump versus the Shawshank Redemption. Thank Who you. should have actually won Best Picture, as I'm calling it, on trial civil court. Right. Um, <laughs> I misspoke. So, yes, uh, Forrest Gump versus the Shawshank custody Redemption. Of, custody of the Oscar. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then August, and then we skip July, and then on August 13th, we do Dances with Wolves. So that's uh, that's the next couple of on trials we got for you. Uh in the meantime, like I said, it was video game week all week long. Uh, Injustice, Ready Player One, Power Glove, Mo- um, Metal Combat for the Mortal Man. Next week on the Rattle Legend Broadcasting Network, we've got a pair of wrestling shows for you. Um, we're going to do Ringside Volume 1, Kayfabe on the source material, and then 
We're going to have a TV party tonight for uh, WrestleMania 34 on Tuesday, April 10th. And then the 11th is Camelot, The Shadow Theory on the Metal Hammer of Doom. Sean, what's your pleasure? Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Comer Codex. Same handle in both places, C-O-M-E-R-C-O-D-E-X. Um, on Twitch, you can follow, oh, that's right, since the last time we had a show, you can now subscribe to my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Comer Codex. I am now fully monetized. Um, I typically stream uh, various video games about uh, six, seven nights a week. Usually it's uh, Monday through Friday and Sunday. And then Sunday, uh, we play one single-player game all the way through until the finish. Uh, more recently, it has been Bloodborne. And then on Saturday, myself and friend of the R.I.B.N., Cole Marintet, uh, host Saturday Night Smite, wherein it's pretty much exactly what it says in the tin. For about two or three hours, we get together with a bunch of friends and play our very favorite Deity Smackdown MOBA. Um, of course, uh, I'm kind of off for a few days right now because uh, my, my sleep problems have been rearing their head once again, and I'm a wreck because of it. So there was no stream tonight. There will be no stream tomorrow night, but I will be back uh, Saturday night for Saturday Night Smite with the guys as usual. And then on Sunday, um, I believe we have something going on over at FPG News for WrestleMania 34. Stuart has said that he wants to do something coverage-wise, but he hasn't yet told me what it is. <laughs> um, if nothing else, you can count on my having my full review of the show up on Monday. Uh, Monday morning after this coming Sunday. So yeah, also since I'm going to be watching that, you can also expect no stream on sun stream on Sunday. But I will be back on Monday on FPG News with my WrestleMania thoughts on Twitch with my stream and probably updating on future projects on Twitter as I go along. All right, uh, court is now in recess for Sean. Comer of the Comer Codex. Uh, I am your mandated reporter and frankly I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radulich of the Radulich and Broadcasting Network. This has been On Trial. Be well, be safe, and behave. presents an evening with the progressive box oh what a great audience let's dim the lights for this next one oh too much ah there it is gotta get things just right like progressives name your price tool tell us what you want to pay and we help you find coverage options that fit your budget and now the mood is right wait the lights are back on again trudy can you and now it's completely dark progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law